Webster made this very simple declaration. If you want to hand something valuable down to the next generation, you hand the best. But there was something else that happened that I added. I added a slide into this because of current events. Daniel Webster shocked that audience that night in 1820. They came for a dinner like this. A large banquet to honor Forefathers Day, the day the pilgrims stepped on Plymouth Rock. In 1820, it was the only true American holiday. Christmas wasn't even legal in New England. There was no sentiments because they landed on December 11. With a change of calendar, it was December 21. Daniel Webster made these remarks, and then he took a detour. And you need to hear it today, because though this is difficult probably for you to read, I want you to listen to the words that Daniel Webster spoke as his detour in the middle of an oration. It would be like me stopping and saying, you know, I know we're talking about the pilgrims. But I have something very important to say. And he said this, I deem it my duty on this occasion to suggest that the land is not yet wholly free from the contamination of a traffic at which every feeling of humanity must forever revolt. I mean the African slave trade. This odious and abominable trade, there is reason to fear that to the disgrace of the Christian name and character, new efforts are making for the extension of this trade by subjects and citizens of Christian states, in whose hearts there dwell no sentiments of humanity or of justice, and over whom neither the fear of God nor the fear of man exercise a control. In the sight of our law, the African slave trader is a felon. In the sight of heaven, an offender beyond the ordinary depth of human guilt. I would call on all the true sons of New England. Let us pledge ourselves here upon the rock of Plymouth to extirpate and destroy it. It is not fit that the land of the pilgrims should bear the shame longer. This work of hell, foul and dark, the artificers of such instruments of misery and torture, let it be set aside from the Christian world that civilized man henceforth have no communion with it. And we're told that there was no cry against this sin. Oh yes, there was. I can guarantee you, if people had not finished their dinner, they had no appetite. That's only a short excerpt of his prophetic voice. Because America, from the beginning, and illustrated in the pilgrim story, was never perfect. The key is not whether a nation has sins, every nation does. The critical point is not whether you and I have sin, we all do. The question is, who will rise up and name it? Who will cry against it? And who will be determined to make sure it does not continue and it gets eradicated? So it is with you and I, here in this room. We will be remembered based on what we truly stand up for and what we truly speak against. Because indeed, generations to come will be seen. And they will look back and see that even from us. So who were these pilgrims? Why would a 400th anniversary of such a group, who were never numerous, never wealthy, they never had a dominant a multitude better than anyone else. There are footnote in history books 
Some history books spend a few paragraphs bashing the Puritans. But very few even mention the pilgrims. In fact, they've been lost to history. Well, they're children of the Reformation. That's that phenomenal revival that started with John Wycliffe translating the Latin Vulgate into the English Bible. All the way to 1660. They're converted by the move of God's Spirit. They're separated from the Church of England. They form a church covenant before God. They seek to live out their faith in peace. They embrace the vision for Christ's kingdom. They believe that our character is the foundation of our witness. See, they believed you could never witness to someone else and be effective beyond the character of what you lived. And they left a family legacy for our nation. If we would look at this, we William Bradford, his statue is there in Plymouth. This is how Bradford begins his history. It is well known under the godly and judicious. How ever since the first breaking out of the light of the gospel in our honorable nation of England, what wars, oppositions ever since, Satan hath raised, maintained, and continued against the saints. From time to time in one sort or another. Sometimes by bloody death and cruel torments. Others while imprisonment, banishment, and other hard usages. As being loath, his kingdom should go down. The truth prevail, and the churches of God revert to their ancient purity and recover their primitive order, liberty, and beauty. See, this classic literary piece of work, penned under candlelight in the wilderness of New England, is the first American classic. Should be read by every American. And yet, the first paragraph would offend people today. That the war we truly face is not political, though it affects politics. It is not about laws, though laws must change and they can frame mischief and evil as the Bible says. The true war is spiritual. The true war is one of faith. The true war is won or lost in the heart long before anything else. I have had the opportunity and the blessing to consult state legislatures, to work with those in public office in our church and in our community. I believe it's a blessing to be able to serve them, but I can tell you this. Politics is the effect, is the cause, and I mean the effect, not the cause. We are living with the effect of a war that's in the spiritual realm. And the pilgrims knew it. In fact, if we look at it, we recognize. I'm just going to highlight three key ideas that we see in our society today that we tend to be losing today. These ideas, and they were brought by the pilgrims. I think it can be documented. As in a story, I think it can be footnoted. That the pilgrims came not even realizing the change in the current and the tide that took place in their small movement. Never large, never numerous, never wealthy. Think about it right now. If we, if we were in their company, if we never have enough money, we never think we have enough people, and we never think anybody pays attention to what we say. You're a pilgrim. Just accept it. And realize, you should be dressed like this. 
But what do I mean? I'm going to show you in their words. You see, they believed that you would come to Christ voluntarily, not by force. They believed that a church was to be started by a covenant, voluntarily. You have to realize this is totally opposite to everything that was in society at the time. Nobody was allowed to form a church by their own will. No, it was formed from above. It was formed for you. If you were born within 50 miles of the parish, your role and your name was already registered. You already were a part of that church. You did not go to the church of your choice. You went to the church of the bishops and the king's choice. It was an established church. You couldn't go anywhere else. The pilgrims had the congregation confirm the pastor by a free vote. That was unheard of. No, you got the, the, the bishop that was selected for you. Because this was the constant idea. Those with power are those that have enough smarts and discerning intelligence so much better than the rest of us that they choose for you. It's better for somebody else to do the work and you just be relaxed. Well, the pilgrims didn't believe that. They believed the opposite. And because they believed the church could confirm the pastor, they also believed that the citizens should confirm the public official. You've got to realize, there hasn't always been voting, folks. You know, I had one person, I was over in England teaching this. The Christian history of England, I was teaching to England. And I remember a man came up to me and he just said, Hey, you guy from New England? You are fighting for taxation. No taxation without representation. How do you like taxation with representation? And that's because we've lost the stewardship we used to have. The Mayflower Compact implies it. In fact, listen to this. This is Bradford saying, When it was by the travail and diligence of godly and zealous preachers and God's blessing on their labors, many became enlightened by the word of God, had their ignorance and sins discovered unto them, and began by His grace to reform their lives and make conscience of their ways. The work of God was no sooner manifest in them, but presently they were stopped by the profane multitude and the ministers urged with the yoke of subscription or else they must be silenced they began to reform their own lives this, this was their church covenant when they got together they recognized that um, the church of England John Robinson their pastor said is not a church a church is married to Christ but the church of England he said is married to the state Therefore, it cannot be holy before God when it's married to the state. Because it's in violation of God's word. This is the kind of thing that they heard preached. So many, therefore, of these professors that saw the evil of these things, and whose hearts the Lord had touched with heavenly zeal. For His truth, they shook off the yoke of anti-Christian bondage, as the Lord's free people joined themselves by a covenant of the Lord into a church estate, in the fellowship of the gospel, to walk in all His ways, to be made known or to be made known according to their best endeavors, whatsoever it should cost them. The Lord assisting them, and that it cost them something, this ensuing history will declare. They formed their own covenant. In fact, John Robinson got in real trouble with these next words. 
he decided to publish his remarks to the bishop. Now if you're going to dethrone and expose a political, an individual who is a politician, their inconsistencies, their radical lifestyles nobody knows about, and you're going to tell them the things John Robinson is going to say, you better be prepared to run. It's like John Locke, when he wrote in the 1600s, we don't belong to the state. I've never seen a civil government give birth to a single human being. And then he ran for his life for the next three months. So John Robinson said this, the order of servants is inferior to the order of those whose servants they are. But the order of church officers is an order of servants. And they by their office are to serve the people. The order of kings is the highest order or estate in the church. But the order of a saint is the order of a king. And we are kings as we are saints, not as we are officers. The elders are inferior, less excellent than the church, as being both of and for the church, not the church of and for them. This is radical teaching at this time period. Applied to the civil realm, which it soon got applied to, it would be something like this. Public officials are not the parent and the citizens the child. It is not that way. We do not come out from public officials. They come out from us. They merely represent us. Therefore, when you become a public official, you actually take a more inferior position than the kings who you serve. This is enough of a controversy today. You should see the reaction I get when I preach this to pastors. Because we're reverting back to doing away with the consent of the governed. Public officials are voted in by the citizens. Listen to what John Robinson says. You're going to become a body politic. You're going to use amongst yourself civil government. You're not furnished with any personal special eminency above the rest. You're not furnished with any special eminency above the rest. Whoa, that wouldn't go over well in England at the time to be chosen by you into office of government. And I love this phrase. Let your wisdom and godliness appear. I say this to Christians. The government we have today in the United States is better than we deserve. Because our lack of wisdom and godliness has appeared. Listen, when you know that in the evangelical community, less than 50% are even registered to vote. When you know in any election from the evangelical community, less than a third of those registered vote. Our godliness and wisdom, or lack thereof, has appeared. Because there are sins of omission as well as commission. One pastor said to me, would you, would you actually have a voter registration in the church? Of course! You see, they said this and they said the following, God's ordinance is for your good. Don't be like the foolish multitude who honor the gate coat and even, or rather than the virtuous mind of the man or glorious ordinance of the Lord. These things are good things to think, and I, I use this, by the way, at election time. 
That's an old guy you probably never heard of, the Patriot Pastor of the Pilgrims. Says something you ought to remember. And then they look at me, they have no idea what's coming. And I said, don't vote for someone based on their rhetoric. Don't vote for someone based on their appearance, how they carry themselves. Vote for them based on their record, their character, and what they have done. That's what could be shouted over time from the pastor. What about the Mayflower Compact? That first document written off side the shore. It was a pattern after their church covenant, their civil covenant. Blown off course. They then decided to do it. Look, there was about to be a mutiny on board that little Mayflower. Why? Because everybody understood this fact. Wherever they went, there was a problem in England with a state church. That meant King James was the head of the church. That's the civil government donning a religious garment. That's against the law in the Old Testament. It's not what God says. You can see when it happens, when it's wrong. When Saul did it. Saul took on the role of Samuel, and God stepped in. Whenever that, that's not good, that's not what God wants. He wants two separate institutions, but both under God. And here they are, and they thought the same. You could understand. Look, 75% of those on the Mayflower came from a church that had become an immigrant church, people coming from all over England in Leiden, Holland. So those 75 people outnumbered everybody else on the Mayflower. Now they're off course, they have to write a government document. You know what the people are going to say. Hey, look, we do not want to be ruled. We understand you didn't want to be ruled by the state. Now we're going to end up being ruled by your church. And we don't even want to go to your church. And this is the answer. They said, no. Based on their teaching, they said, no, you're not going to be ruled by our church. We're each going to have an equal say in the formation of our laws. And this is how we're going to be in the preamble. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are written, the subjects of King James, God, to the people, and then out to the government. Automatically, without them knowing it, it kind of sounds like endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. And that we have government by consent of the governed, not by the rule of the governed. That's democracy, that's what the founders called mobocracy. Where factions rule by total loyalty rather than the consent of the governed. That's the rule of law. And the pilgrims in that tiny seed in the cabin of the Mayflower sowed that seed. Pilgrims were on the only community in early America where you didn't have to be a member of the church to vote in society. The Puritans tended to go the other extreme. They came to every member of the church, because after all, we have to keep the society pure in order to be able to vote in society. Well, the problem is, the moment you give too much power to anybody, they don't stay pure. So you see, consent of the governed did not get invented by Thomas Jefferson. Consent of the governed did not come at the Declaration of Independence. It came out of the Reformation. It came from Christianity. It was in the Old Testament. It was affirmed in the New Testament. And it came out of Christianity and the Reformation. But that idea of the consent of the governed, would you agree? It not only is not taught any longer or its origin, we no longer know it well enough to defend it. So when it's attacked, often there's silence. What about equality before God? Where did that come from? All men created equal. Well, on July 5 this year, 2020, 
You know, sometimes I just had this thing happen to me as a pastor. I said on July 5, 2020, something ought to be said. So I preached on the phrase, all men are created equal. And I demonstrated why the idea is today that somehow all didn't mean all. And one person said, it's all racist because it, it's men instead of women. You haven't read history. That's not, it, it was mankind, it was generic. They're using biblical phrases in an actual phrase. But it didn't start with the declaration, folks. It went far back, and it was a declaration of promise. Someone said to me, well, how could it possibly have been positive if some of the people who signed a document owned slaves? Yes, that's wrong. It's inconsistent. But I'm telling you right now, a hundred years from now, should the Lord tarry, people will look back on us wondering how you could talk about liberty and not expose the sex trafficking that is going on in this nation today. It is ten times worse what's happening elsewhere. We're going to go back and say, how could anybody be so inconsistent? We are inconsistent, folks. That's true. That doesn't excuse anyone. But the beauty of Christianity, whenever Christianity inspires a group of people to then put things to paper, to civil documents. Folks, the phrase, all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence is one of the first public documents in history from the time of the ascension of Christ that ever says we are equal before God. It's nowhere else. You can look all through the pages of history. It's not the case. I'm opposed by all kinds of people who say, Oh, you don't know your history. I ask them, show me a public document that has it. Silence. Why? Because it is a stake in the ground. It is an anchor. The beautiful thing about Christianity is when we profess Christ as Lord, we are professing His Lordship beyond what we're living. We're not living up to His Lordship. But we say He's Lord. It's like throwing an anchor a hundred yards ahead and pulling the boat up to it. We can be thankful. We live in a nation where people had the guts to proclaim something out of the Bible that was way ahead of where they were living. That's why ever since then, Native Americans, African Americans, and others who have come to America, including women's suffrage, all went back to that phrase in the Declaration of Independence, including Martin Luther King Jr. on the mall in Washington, D.C. Why? Because it came out of God, not Jefferson. There were Christian motives for settlement. It was evangelism by example. Again, the Mayflower Compact said everyone was equal. Everyone had an equal share in the loss. The church was not going to dominate. The state was not going to dominate. In fact, the people, by their consent, would create the church and the state. What a thought. In fact, when you look at it, Christian motives for exploration were so distinct from what I read to you earlier. The idea was simply this. In this book Robert Cushman wrote in the early 1600s, this was the idea. You can't go into a land, I mean exploring as a Christian, and just claim the land like they did in the Old Testament with Israel. You can't do that. 
Number two, you've got to go and you not only can't claim land, but you've got to go for the glory of God and not for gold. Gold cannot be number one and God number two. If you're going to be right with God, God has to get the glory number one. And then He will allow you to get the gold to prosper. But the moment you become a worshiper of mammon, you're into idolatry and the plantation will fail. This is what they were all preaching at the time. In fact, they said the following too. Can't go for selfish reasons. You've got to go and bring the salvation of God to those who don't know them. To the sons of Adam, as he said. The intention must be to be a witness and not go to oppress. Not only that, you should use empty space and not something claimed by the natives. And then pay them for the land. Make peace with them as quickly as possible to make sure you live at peace with the natives. Now, you've all learned this in school. That this was the true motive of the pilgrims, and to a large degree, the current. They didn't all live up to it. But it was the large, but no, we're not. this has been removed. So we think everyone just came to dominate. Evangelism, look at this story. I'll just read it. In the time of most distress, first winter now, there was but six or seven sound persons who have ordered to their great commandments, be it spoken, spared no pains night nor day, but with abundance of toil and hazard of their own health, fetched them wood, made them fires, dressed them meat, made their beds, washed their loaves and clothes, clothed and unclothed them, without any grudging in the least, showing here and there true love unto their friends and brethren. A rare example worthy to be remembered. You see, of a hundred and two passengers, and about 15 to 18 crew members of the Mayflower, everybody's getting sick, but only six or seven people are healthy. That's a good analogy for today. And the six and seven people served all those that were sick, even though they knew they could become sick and die themselves. In fact, he goes on to say that the crew members on board the Mayflower, because the women and children were still on board the Mayflower, three more months after the voyage. They had to stay there, and their sickness was raging among them. They that had been boon companions in drinking and jollity in the time of their health and welfare now began to desert one another in this calamity, saying they would not hazard their lives for them, they should be infected by coming to help them in their cabins, and so after they came to lie by it, would do little or nothing for them, and said, if they die, let them die. These are the non-Christian crew members. But such of the passengers as were yet aboard showed them what mercy they could and made some of their hearts relent as the boatswain and some others who was a proud young man who would often curse and scoff at the passengers. But when he grew weak, they had compassion on him, helped him. Then he confessed he did not deserve it at their hands. He had abused them in word and deed. Oh, he said, I now see your love like true Christians indeed, one to another. But we let one another lie and die like dogs. You see, it's our Christianity and the peaceful living out of our faith in the midst of all the turmoil we see that is going to have the greatest impact. It's easy to get angry. I get up and leave the room sometimes watching the news. So I'm like you. I'm just saying, I've had it. I don't care what channel's on. I'm out of here. I've got to reckon that because I can't handle it. I start shouting at televisions. But I recognize this. Truly, there's a greater impact by living your life for Christ in such a way that you bless even your enemies. You bless even those who persecute you. This is what happened. In fact, 
This is what happened with Edward Winslow, the ambassador of the pilgrims, with the enemy Indian chief, Corbettine. Being in his house, how he durst, being but two, come so far in the country. He said, how can you come out here with just two people? You're going to sleep in my wigwam? What's going on? Or you sleep in my wee too? And he, I said, where there's true love, there's no fear. My heart was so upright towards him that for my own part, I was fearless to come among them. Further, observing us to crave a blessing on our meat before we did eat, after to give thanks for the same. By the way, the pilgrims prayed before they ate, and then they prayed at the end of the meal as well. And he said, he asked, what was the meaning of this? Hereupon I took the occasion to tell him of God's works of creation, preservation, his laws, his ordinance, and the Ten Commandments, all which they hearkened unto with great attention, and we reasoned a good time. They didn't like some of the Ten Commandments. That's a story for another time. But once again, you're equal before the law. Folks, biblical equality is that we are all positionally and internally equal before the law. Equality does not mean that we all are equal in external possessions, wealth, intellect, work ethic, or, or any other aspect of character. There's internal unity and external diversity. That's always been the meaning of Christian equality before the law. And it started with this tiny band of pilgrims. I think a 400th anniversary is worth rehearsing the origins of these phrases. Because our nation has lost their concept. And then peace with the Wampanoag. A treaty of peace where the Wampanoag were treated as a sovereign nation. The English were treated as a sovereign nation. If an Englishman uh, disobeyed the law and violated it, he was tried by English law. If a native disobeyed or committed murder against an Englishman, then he's tried by Indian law. And when they had this happen, where an Englishman murdered a native, half the jury was native. And half was English. Now how come we don't hear that? Because they wanted to know whether there be true justice or not. And when an Englishman murdered an Indian and they were publicly put to death, the natives said, now we know that we really, in your eyes, are equal. Because folks, there were other colonies in New England that said it took five natives to be equal to one Englishman. But when that happened, and you live it out, equality is not just a word. It actually is due process. And finally, a work ethic, a family legacy. There's so much more we could look at, but you look at this and you say, what, what kind of work ethic is here? In fact, on a small monument, Chris, you've seen it, the Pilgrim Mother Monument there in Plymouth, representing the fact that women and families came, very unique at the time. No women went on boats back then. You didn't have to say, hey, we're going on vacation to the wilderness. No, that's not happening. Women and children didn't go. It was just male. It made the Pilgrim story totally unique that they came as a covenanted church. Folks, America was founded by a church plant. And the church plant was made up of covenanted families who wanted to raise their children and leave a legacy to multitudes of generations. They even made a financial uh, thing on a total inscription underneath. By the way, the Pilgrim Mother Monument representing the families in Plymouth is in the shape of a fountain because the family was the fountain of society. And on the back it says, they brought up their families in sturdy virtue, a living faith in God, without which nations perish. You should see tourists on their faces. I just did a tour group there. Took them around behind. About 15 people and read that. Two people nearly burst into tears. They said, oh my gosh, 
You see, because they came as families. The work ethic in Holland. Now think about how unusual this is. When the pilgrims immigrated to Leiden from England, they, had to, they tried to leave. King James gave them a simple proposition, worship in the established church. They said, no, we can't. Well, if you, if, then you have to leave. But if you try to leave, I'll arrest you and put you in jail. You can't stay, you can't leave. That's good. Then they finally were able to get to Holland. They had to smuggle themselves out of the country and get into Holland. This is what they said to the Dutch authorities. That we will earn our own living by carrying on our various trades without in the least being a burden to anyone else. So the pilgrims promised the Dutch authorities this. We're going to go into your community. We're going to learn your trades. We're going to learn your language. We're going to do it your way. And we will never displace a Dutch worker. We will create our own. Our character will create our space. It's not as common now as that. And yet, though many of them were poor, look at the testimony, yet there was none so poor, but if they were known to be of that congregation, the Dutch, either bakers or others, would trust them in any reasonable matter when they wanted money because they had found by experience how careful they were to keep their word, saw how painful and diligent they were in their callings, yea, they would strive to get their custom to employ them above others in their work for their honesty and diligence. I've told many characters, your character will keep your job. You can character-proof your employment. You'll be the last one let go. Why? Because you stay late? I tell our teenagers, the best thing you can do, you get a job from, I don't care whether you're working at an ice cream shop or you're working at a mechanic shop. You need to tell the boss at least once a week, I am here to make you wealthy. I am here to serve you. I am here to bless you. I am here to work in my absolute best. And after they faint and get carried off to the hospital, then you can tell them it's because of Christ that you did that. It's in financial incentive. Do you know this is one of the first exploration parties ever made in America where it was an incentive to bring your family. That's why the Stephen Hopkins family even went. All explorations were just male. You went away for 20 years, away from your family, left your wife and children in order to make enough money since you were starving to death in England to bring all the money back. But instead, they made it easier. In fact, if you look at the financial arrangements, they made it very easy. The more of your family members you brought, the more of the financial incentive there was. That's unusual. And you'd work for the common good. John Robinson said, look, seek the common good. That used to be the phrase, by the way, for every politician I used to say that. A politician is one who learns the skill of getting reelected. A statesman stands for truth even if they get voted out of office. There's a major difference between the two. But a statesman works for the common good, not for minor principles or privileges. That's what Robinson said. And because of this, they changed from common ownership. To the financiers in England said, profit is a sin. Except when they made the profit. Profit is a sin. And so they made the pilgrims work six out of seven days. They hardly any money for themselves. Put them in a common condition, a communal arrangement. No matter how hard you worked, you got the same pay. 
So here's what happened. When they were about to starve to death, three years in, the governor, with the advice of the chiefest among them, gave way that they should set corn every man for his own particular, and so assigned to every family a parcel of land according to the proportion of their number. This had very good success, for it made all hands industrious. So much more corn was planted than otherwise might have been. By the way, they tripled their production. The women now went willingly into the field, took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability, whom to have compelled would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. Can you imagine this? Because everybody who worked the same got the same amount, that there were certain people said, I'm not going to go into the field. I'm too sick today. And they weren't really sick. But I'm still too sick because it really doesn't matter because I only get the same amount anyway. I just kind of will get that, and, and, and that's the way it is. Now, they, they did not know the name term of socialism. <clears throat> so as a historian, I can't say it was socialistic, but Bradford said it was tyranny and oppression. So let's conclude with this. Folks, the 400th anniversary of the arrival of these people, I say on tours when young people look at me thinking, I can't believe my parents taught a tour guide looking like you. <laughs> they don't say that, but I can read in their eyes. I've been in a classroom teacher for too many years. And I just said to them, you really wish you were dressed like this, don't you? Especially in 90 degree days. You really want to be looking like this, don't you? No, no, no. But I can tell you what made them truly successful so when Bradford said there, he asked, why did you come here? Why did you come? Why did you sacrifice? Why did you pay the price? When half your number died the first winter, 51 out of 102. Why did you say it was God's grace that more children survived in proportion than adults? Why did you see the positive when everything around you was negative? No money, no prestige, no attention, nobody taking anything you say seriously. How could you say you were so positive? Because he said this, lastly, which was not least, we had a great hope and inward zeal that of laying some good foundation, or at least to make a way thereto, for the propagating and advancing the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world, yea, though they should be even as stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. Folks, they did this for us. Stepping stones unto us. It was William Bradford that said in 1630 these simple words. As one small candle may light a thousand, so the light here kindled has shown to many. Nay, in some sort to our whole nation, let the glorious name of Jehovah have all the praise. Because this small band knew if they took ideas to the new world, they would live forever. Why? Because they were God's ideas. What made America unique in the table of nations, folks, is we were established on an idea. Whereas most nations are established on ethnicity, most nations are established by conquering, most nations are established by all external types and means. We were established on ideas. Ideas that not only live beyond the pilgrims, but live beyond the sin and the shortcoming of the very people who proclaim the ideas. Because they're God's ideas, they rule forever. Because they're God's ideas, it will go on to future generations. Never think that your work in this organization or others in your locality is futile 
or somehow we just don't have the money, we just don't have the people, we just don't have it. It looks like we're losing. Look at the news. I have good news for you. It's not the news that rules tomorrow. It's not the news that has the last report. It's the God of the universe that has the last report. And God can do the same thing through us today. Small, insignificant, small numbers. I can tell you this. God rules. Your children, your grandchildren. Your great-grandchildren will thank you for your sacrifice if you're willing to say, whatsoever it should cost us, we are stepping stones unto others for the performance of so great a work. God bless you on your journey of faith. Amen.